Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. I want to start with a warm welcome to the newest members of the Modern Manager community, Christina B., Derek C., and Emma P. They have all taken advantage of this final month of the current membership pricing to get access to dozens of materials to support the journey of becoming or enhancing your rockstar management skills. Beginning December 1st, memberships will start at $20 to get access to those full episode guides and all of the guest bonuses, and at $50 to join the monthly group coaching call. But if you join before the pricing change, you can keep paying this low introductory price of only $5 or $20 for those two different tiers and get full access for as long as you maintain your membership. Speaking of the November group coaching call, this is your chance to speak with me directly live or send in your questions and I will answer those specific challenges that you are facing. And of course, I always share the recording. The call will take place on Wednesday, November 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern. To participate and take advantage of this final month of that low membership price, go to patreon.com slash modern manager. And of course, the link is in the show notes. So my guest today is Tara Moore. Tara is an expert on women's leadership and well-being. She empowers women to play bigger by sharing their voices and bringing forward their brilliant ideas in work and life. Tara is the author of Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead, and creator of the Global Playing Big Leadership Program for Women, as well as the Playing Big Facilitators Training. Tara's work has been featured on national media from the New York Times to the Today Show to the Harvard Business Review, and she speaks regularly at national women's conferences and organizations such as Google, Starbucks, and so many more. Tara and I talk about different forms of fear, that annoying inner critic that holds us back, and how to respond to someone's inner critic when it's holding them back. And let me tell you, this is not just for women. There is so much we get into that is just about being human. Now here's my interview with Tara. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tara. I want to start by letting our guests know that we are actually distant cousins, which is kind of a really strange and funny thing and how we ended up meeting. Yes, it is a funny and wonderful thing. Actually, I don't even know if I know the accurate story. How did you get connected to my sister? So funnily enough, I knew your sister before we knew that we were all cousins. And the reason for that is that I earlier in about 10, 15 years ago now, I was thinking about graduate school and considering going to Stanford Business School. And I was exploring the website for Stanford Business School. And first I saw your sister's name on like the social impact organizations. And then I saw your sister's name on the women's stuff. There were like three or four things that I was interested in. And she was sort of running them all. <laughs> and I thought, I'm just going to see if I can talk to this person about what it's like to be at Stanford Business School, particularly because I knew that some of my interests and those interests weren't necessarily the central ones. So I reached out to her and we talked on the phone then and then connected a little more when I eventually was in the MBA program there and then stayed a little bit connected. And then I think I met you through some philanthropic stuff, or at least heard about you through 
things we were both interested in years later. And then after all that, my aunt came to me and said she had been exploring genealogy websites and had discovered this whole other branch of the family. (laughs) And it turned out to be you guys. Oh my gosh. That's Amazing. I love that we had so many connections before genealogy.com. And thank you. Shout out to whoever put that information online for us. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So let's shift gears a second and talk about what we're really here to talk about today, which is playing big. And I see that you have a definition and you explain playing big as being more loyal to your dreams than to your fears. So can you unpack that for us? Absolutely. So a lot of people hear the phrase playing big and they immediately have a mixed reaction. Uh, On the one hand, they feel like that sounds really good and there's things I'd love to be bolder with and braver with in my work or in my life. And I think a lot of us also resonate with the term playing small. Like we know that in some way we're not living up to our potential or we're letting self-doubt get the better of us. And so we do feel this call to play bigger. But then we, many of us have thoughts like, but I'm so busy already. I'm exhausted already. I'm overwhelmed already. I don't want to work harder. Um, And so it's really important to clarify that playing big by the definition I use and the work I do with people is not about any of that. It is not about striving more. It is not about putting in more time and working harder. It's really about getting in touch with what are your dreams and your aspirations for your work and life, apart from what your family would love you to do, apart from what, you know, maybe your spouse would understand or get the first time you talk to them about it, apart from maybe what you were socialized to strive for. What are your real dreams for your life and work? And the real playing big is getting into a relationship of more acceptance with those dreams. That's kind of a first step because a lot of us won't even give ourselves permission to want what we want and then start to take action to bring those things into reality. So fear is clearly a part of that, right? When you're thinking about what you really want and are, is, are you allowed to want that? And what if that's you know really ambitious and how are you going to get there? Or How do you handle all that fear that comes into play? Yeah. Well, in the book, I talk about a framework for thinking about fear that has been so helpful for me and so helpful for the clients and the people that I work with. And it actually comes out of ancient Hebrew language and an Old Testament framing for fear and some teachings that I first learned from Rabbi Alan Liu, who is a brilliant spiritual teacher and rabbi here in the Bay Area, really a pioneer in giving people a way to sort of access a a contemporary, very relevant spirituality through Jewish text and tradition. And one of the things he's written about is how in our Old Testament stories, there are two different terms, two different words for fear. And the first term is pachad. And the way he defines pachad is it's the fear of projected things or imagined things. So when we imagine the worst case scenario that could happen, and in our contemporary lives, that might look like, you know, I'm going to apply for that job, and they're going to scoff at the fact that I'd even think I'm qualified. 
or I'm going to share this idea in a meeting and everyone will think it's ridiculous, right? The worst case scenario, the catastrophizing fear where we play the movie out of the future, that's pahad. And that's that irrational lizard brain overprotective fear. The other word is a much less familiar concept, I think, to most of us, this other word for fear. And that word is yirah. And in the Old Testament stories, yirah has three different meanings. One, it's the feeling we feel when we are inhabiting a larger space than we're used to. And you can think of that as a physical space or kind of a metaphoric space, stepping into something larger, maybe taking on more responsibility. That's one of the definitions. It's also the feeling we feel when we suddenly have more energy flowing through us than we're accustomed to. And if you think about how you feel when you're doing what you're really passionate about, or when you're speaking up about an idea that's important to you, right? It often brings that huge influx of energy. And then the third definition is what we feel in the presence of the sacred. So when Moses is at the burning bush, this is the word that's used to describe what he feels. So how is that relevant in our contemporary work lives? Well, when we are taking a risk towards our playing big, when we are following a passion, when we are doing something that kind of requires us to leave the herd, meaning do something that other people might not universally applaud or even understand, that will bring up all those feelings of yura. And it's really helpful to have these two different words and two different concepts of fear because we want to respond to those fears really differently. If we're in that worst case scenario, catastrophizing fear, that's almost always going to be irrational. And we want to be sure we're not being led by that, that we're being mindful about it and choosing our actions from a different part of ourselves. When we're feeling yura, the response is really different. That tells us we're on the right track, actually. And we then want to really just get comfortable with the feeling of Yura, breathe into it, and keep doing whatever is bringing that feeling to us. That is so beautifully said. And it's got me now thinking about all of these different moments where I felt different kinds of fears. And one of them, I do a lot of public speaking. And one of those, that like rush of energy where I'm clearly nervous, like clearly like my, I'm freezing cold. I can't eat anything when I have to get up in front of a really big audience, but it's not fear that's holding me back. It's fear that's like adrenaline rush pushing me forward. And I never thought about that as fear. Like I've always told people, oh yes, public speaking doesn't bother me. But actually now I have a new understanding of what that feeling is. It actually Mm -hmm. is a form of fear, but a positive fear. Yeah. And there can be a sense of awe that goes with it and kind of transcendence of our small self, which I think for a lot of us does come with when we're in front of an audience of some kind and we're in our flow, our connection with the material that we're speaking about and our connection with the energy in the room and the energy of the audience is so strong that the boundaries between ourself and the audience and what we're speaking about can start to fade away. And that is a certain kind of spiritual experience, actually, that we can have through our work. Well, so now I'm thinking about the uh, the other pieces of fear and the kind of holding back fear piece of it, the pachad that you talked about, and that kind of inner critic voice that's saying, oh, you can't do that, or it's going to be so hard, or are you sure you really want to do that? That's going to take so much work. And how to distinguish that voice and how to quiet that voice. Yes, yes. 
So this is a huge part of my work. And I actually start my courses with a section on the inner critic and the book starts with a section on the inner critic because I've learned over the years that if you don't start with that, you almost can't cover anything else because the inner critic will just attack whatever's going on for people around other topics. And so it's very helpful early in a process, if you're in a process of wanting to make a career change or work towards a new career goal or make a personal kind of change to start with what does my inner critic sound like in my head? What is it saying about this change that I'm contemplating? And what are some tools they can use in the moment to deal with it? Because once you've got that skill set going, then you can start to tackle, you know, what exactly is my vision or what action should I take while keeping your inner critic well managed? So that inner critic voice is the voice in us that is saying harsh things that we would not intend to say to someone we love. Sometimes it's quite obvious and explicit when it's saying, you know, oh, you totally screwed that up. You don't know what you're doing. It can be easier to recognize. Other times it's more subtle, you know, oh, sure, you can do that, but you just have to get another master's degree before you do, then you'll be well prepared, right? It can, especially for those that are sort of good student types, it can sound like you're just not ready yet or go study more, go prepare for that more. The underlying message is still, you don't measure up, you're not ready, but it's got a more rational way of arguing that to us. And when I started doing this work with people around their inner critics, I thought, you know, if you looked into our childhoods, you could find the root of that inner critic. Like, where did we not get enough support? Or where did we get too much praise? Or, you know, what was the story for each of us that kind of ruined our confidence? And now I no longer believe we should go looking for that story or that there's anything in our biography that tells us why we have an inner critic. And the reason I've changed my mind about that is because over the past decade, I've worked with thousands of people around their inner critic, and everyone has a really different story and different levels of success and accomplishment and familial support and all of that in their background. And yet the structure of the way the inner critic operates for us is almost identical, despite those diverse stories. And that structure that shows up so persistently for us is that when we're doing something that in some way feels emotionally risky, like voicing an idea, making a change, being creative, doing something uncertain, being countercultural, doing something what we might fail at or get rejected at, anything that involves those kinds of emotional risks, we will hear the inner critic. And the inner critic is what it's really trying to do is not just bust our confidence, but get us to retreat back into our comfort zone. So it comes from a part of us that is not concerned with our fulfillment and our self-actualization, but just with our emotional safety and, and a sort of very base definition of our emotional comfort. So for that reason, one of the best tools we can use is when we're hearing a voice of self-doubt to say, okay, hmm, like what does my emotional safety instinct not like about this situation? Oh, it doesn't like that I might fail. It doesn't like that I might get rejected. It doesn't like that it doesn't know the outcome. And okay, that's why the inner critic is speaking up here. It's, it's trying to argue me back into the comfort zone of the familiar status quo. And when we can see how that fear is operating, then we can have a lot of compassion 
and sort of let that inner critic voice be there, but no, I'm not taking direction from my safety seeking part of me, which is always just going to look for more repetition and comfort in my life. I'm going to take direction from the aspiring part of me, the part that wants growth and adventure and fulfillment of my potential. This makes so much sense. And I'm thinking about how applying this into a managerial role, what kind of what that looks like. I mean, thinking about as a manager, you might want to try new strategies with your team or you might have people that you need to share some feedback with and you're a little bit nervous about that and how they're going to take it. And so you hear that inner critic saying, or at least I'll see for myself, my inner critic is going, oh, it's really not that bad. Just, you yeah. know, it's okay. You can just let that go. You, you don't really need to, to worry about that so much. Like it, it, it'll be okay, which I think is actually my inner critic telling me not to do it. It's just couching it in a way that is more kind of appeasing or acceptable for me to hear rather than, you know, if you do that, they're going to take it horribly and they're going to be really upset with you and they're going to disrespect you as their boss, right? Right, right, right. And then that gets us into a whole other territory of, you know, and for women especially, how do we manage people effectively given that we've also been socialized to try and make sure that everyone likes us 700% all the time? (laughs) And how do we get things done if we're also trying to sugarcoat everything and, and be likable? And so for, you know, another piece of the work that I do, especially with women, is what we talk about as unhooking from praise and criticism. How do we start to realize that if we're doing substantive work, it's going to be met with praise and criticism. Sometimes people are going to have negative feelings about what we did or said and allowing that to give us information about them. Like, let that teach me what kind of feedback is this person open to or not? How can I communicate with them most effectively? You know, what's the best possible way I can share this with them? And then also sometimes it's just a hard look at ourselves, like what comes up for me that's so difficult for me if someone is feeling not so great about what I said. But the other piece I really want to address is around management and the inner critic, because as managers, we often get a close-up view of our team members in our critics. Like when you want to give someone a stretch assignment and they don't feel like they can do it. Or when someone on your team makes a mistake and you watch how their inner critic takes hold of that and it can really get in the way of their confidence and their productivity, Mm -hmm. right, for a long time. And what we do, and we do it with our team members, we also do it with, you know, our kids as parents, is we make the mistake of thinking that sort of our encouragement and belief in that person can make their inner critic go away. And so we make our conversations are like, no, 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 you can do it. And you're great at that. And I totally believe in you. And occasionally, you know, that might tip the scales for someone in that moment. But most of the time, it does nothing to quiet their inner critic, right? And you can think about for yourself, you know, the times when your inner critic has been really active. If your boss said to you, I know you can do it, that would be just as likely to increase your feeling of pressure and self-doubt, right? <laughs> Versus yes. make it go away. Oh my gosh, right? yes. So what do we do instead? And I think there's a real opportunity for managers to start to bring a conversation to their teams about the inner critic. So rather than arguing with your team members inner critic, we're kind of going up a level to the meta. Wow, okay, we all have this voice in our head. What is that? Let's talk about it. 
what are some of the things that our inner critic says to us? And then what could be some of the fears behind that? And how would we each act if we weren't listening to that voice? Just starting to play with the concept of, yes, we have this voice. It's not the voice of truth. And how can we manage it in the moment? And that can be really, really powerful. And actually, it's sort of the teaching someone how to fish instead of trying to give them a fish, right? Teaching and talking about skills for quieting the inner critic. And there are a lot more, you know, we could talk about today or in the book of you can create a character that personifies your inner critic and that can really add some humor to the situation and give you more of an ability to be in dialogue with it. You can think about what values you want to be expressing in your in a particular situation as opposed to listening to the inner critic. There's, you know, probably about a dozen really practical tools that I talk about in the book, but the the common thing is for all of them, we're, we're using a skill in the moment to respond to that voice rather than trying to become confident or trying to get other people around us to be confident, which is just not realistic when we're doing our most important and therefore our most vulnerable work. So if you have a team member, let's just play hypothetically, if I have a team member that I want to give more responsibility to who I believe has that potential. Is there a particular approach I should take to introducing the concept that will avoid triggering the inner critic or will kind of be more effective at communicating this desire and this belief and more responsibility for this person? Or, you know, is it just kind of like you do it how you do it and then the inner critic will respond how it does? (laughs) I think, you know, I mean, the approach that I have seen work really well for a lot of people is to make it a team conversation, first of all, you know, not a one-on-one that's pinpointed to a particular person and make it, you know, if you have pieces of your meetings or kind of team learning that happens that is, you know, not connected to a particular task right in front of everyone, but more for growth, you know, grab we can post some links for people with the show notes of some inner critic articles they can use or the book chapter and to just start the conversation about how does this place show up for us at work and give people some vocabulary and tools for it. And that way it's not being assigned to a particular person, <laughs> you know, it may be in response to them, but just a, it's, a, it's a skill you can build with your whole team. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think about like having shared norms or having shared language and and shared models for culture. It's so much easier when everybody has that same expectation, that same understanding. So you can have conversations one-on-one or as a group, everybody's kind of on the same page with that concept. So it makes a lot of sense. And a big part of my world is meetings. And I love having meetings. I love the idea of sitting down and having a meeting and being like, okay, today's meeting is a professional development meeting. And we're going to talk about the inner critic. That that just sounds amazing. Mm. And it's interesting because I think meetings are a time when the inner critic comes up a lot for people, right? And, and it, that may be what is keeping the most valuable, challenging questions and ideas out of your meeting is the inner critic in the head of the person who's having those ideas. And so you're opening up a lot of capacity if you can really shift it so that your team members are not listening to that voice. 
Oh, yes. And I get questions about this all the time of how do I get my team members to speak up, to trust that this is a safe space? And I think there's things that you can do as a manager to create that safe space, but it's also about helping people recognize that they're holding themselves back, right? It's that their fear, their inner critic that's saying, don't share that because of some irrational fear rather than, you know, everything you have to do as a manager to make them feel totally safe and ready to share. That's such a good point. And and it's interesting that I think sometimes people are looking to other people or the external circumstance for that safety instead of really understanding that being creative or being innovative or just sharing your authentic voice generally comes with feelings of self-doubt and fear for people. It just does. <laughs> and certainly organizational cultures can push that to more or less of an extreme, but there's just a human reality to that situation. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, while a meeting to discuss the inner critic sounds fantastic to me, there are probably some people who are listening who are going, how the heck am I going to introduce that to my team? They're going to laugh at me. They're going to think this is like the most bizarre thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And that's from, that's their inner critic, right? So if you want help to introduce this to your team, you can reach out to me because I would love to think with you about how to introduce this concept in a team setting and make it not be awkward and strange. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've also seen a lot of success with corporate programs where a senior person will talk about how their own inner critic has figured into their career journey and what are some of the things it says. And that can be really powerful. You know, often more junior people think that confidence is going to come with more experience. And first of all, the research on confidence shows, especially for women, that's not really true, that the confidence levels for executive women and and junior level women are very, very similar. And the reason for that, of course, is that even if we get, we get confident and comfortable in particular skill areas. So the things that felt scary, you know, when we were 28 may become really comfortable when we're 52. But when we're 52, we're being asked to do a bunch of new scary things. You know, maybe then it's going on a board and figuring out how to share your voice in that board meeting or making a much more high stakes decision. And so it doesn't matter what level of seniority you're at. It's whatever is at your edge is what will bring up the inner critic. And it can be really powerful to have a senior person introduce us by sharing from their own story and sort of going first and talking about that. and then letting other people see their own story in that person. I love it. I love it. I always tell managers, it's better to be vulnerable in front of your team because if you look perfect, then one, they can see that you're not perfect. And two, they think you expect perfection from them, which mm-hmm. is not good. Instead, mm-hmm. it's so much better to be vulnerable and show, you know, apologize when you make a mistake or you drop the ball, right? Show them your, your areas of stretch and growth too. And that will help them to be more open about stretching and growing. Absolutely. Build so much trust and authenticity. All right. So as we're wrapping up, you know, this podcast is called The Modern Manager. So I would love for you to share a story about an amazing manager that you've gotten to work for and what made him or her so awesome. Hmm. You know, I'll tell a story. So my boss, and it's been a while, you know, because I've been working on my own for like 10 years now, but I had a fabulous boss in a job in the philanthropic foundation before that. And a story that comes to mind about her, we were instituting a change at this foundation that was going to affect all of our grantees. And we had written a letter to the grantee organizations about it. 
And then she and I went off to a conference and we were at this conference for a few days and sort of thinking about a lot of the latest cutting edge ideas in the field and, you know, really getting to simmer on big ideas and big questions. And then we came back and we were going to do the final, 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 final proofreading on this letter and get it out. And I remember being responsible for that, you know, final polishing and bringing the letter into her office. And she looked at it printed on this piece of paper and said, Oh, no, 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 like, this is completely the wrong approach. This is really what we wrote before. Like, this looks crazy to me now. And she was really concerned about some of the ways we were communicating. And then she just kind of sighed and said, gosh, it is so important to go up to the balcony. Oh, now we have to change this letter completely. And what she meant by that was that by going to that conference and by stepping away from our everyday work for a full three days and really thinking about our work and field at the most bird's eye view kind of level, she had really regrounded in what we were trying to do and what our relationship with our grantees should be. And it completely changed her perspective on this thing that we had just signed off on, you know, right before we left. And I've thought about that so many times. It just made a huge impression on me. And in my team now, we talk about going up to the balcony and we have regular times when we go up to the balcony. Some people call it working on your business instead of working in your business. And I talk about that idea, you know, it made it into it made it into the playing big book as well about going up to the balcony around whatever goals and projects you're working on in your life, stepping out of the actual work on them, and in some way giving yourself a much more big picture, reflective view, because it really does change what you think you need to do. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Tara, for being a guest. This was fantastic. Please tell everyone where they can keep up with you, where they can find out more information about your book and your course and all the amazing stuff that you do. Absolutely. So I am at taramore.com and it's T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R. And the book is called Playing Big. And you can find it on Amazon or really anywhere that you like to buy books. And then I'm, I'm on social media too, if you want to connect there. Fantastic. And we will put all of those in the show notes so everyone will be able to find them. Thank you again for being a wonderful guest. Thank you for the conversation. Tara is up to so much good stuff. I highly recommend her book, Playing Big, if you haven't read it yet. And she has offered her 10 Rules for Brilliant Women workbook to members of the Modern Manager community. I took a look and I am currently working on upping my game on rule number five. So to get Tara's 10 Rules for Brilliant Women workbook, go to patreon.com slash modernmanager. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash modernmanager and join today. Plus, you'll get all the other content and bonuses and get in before that pricing change on December 1st. You can also go to mamieks.com slash podcast and subscribe to my email list while I'll send you episodes, blog articles, and the free mini guides direct to your inbox each week. If you have suggestions for guests or topics that you want me to cover, please let me know. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, 
visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team. I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.